Thank you, Benjamin, for reading the word for us this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me greet you. My name is Greg, and it's my pleasure to teach the word. I usually do so on a weekly basis, but we have two other pastors who are perfectly capable of teaching. They're excellent teachers, and they do a wonderful job when I'm away. If you are just visiting with us this morning, you've sort of jumped onto a treadmill that's already running. We are doing a prayer study this year. The first Sunday of every month when we observe the Lord's table, we're studying a different biblical prayer. We studied the first half of this biblical prayer in the month on the first Sunday in February, and we're studying the second half of this prayer the first Sunday in March. We will progress through the New Testament and pick up other prayers, and we'll be praying them as a church for each other as the weeks go by this year. If you have any questions about that, you be more than welcome to ask me after the service. But suffice it to say, we're doing a prayer study as a church so that we can better pray for each other and so that we can pray for each other biblical prayers. Well, Benjamin read in your hearing John 17. And as we said last time, this passage is best taken, divided up by three. You can divide it up thematically into three or you can divide it by the verses into three. We are bucking the trend and dividing it in half instead. That's not ideal, which we'll see in just a moment, but we're doing that for the purposes of our calendar rather than more for how the prayer is divided. So if there seems to be some inconsistency there, that is why. Well, before we dive into this text and we learn about how we're to be praying for each other, let us pray ourselves and ask God's blessing. Father, would you help us to know your mind and would you fuel our prayers for each other this year. I pray that this month would be a particularly beneficial year in our prayer lives, and that you would bless this church as we pray your words back to you, making application to ourselves. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a vivid memory. It was my senior year of high school. My baseball team had played its final game, and I knew that I would not be attempting to play baseball in college. I went to my bedroom with my uniform still on, and I lingered several minutes before unbuttoning my jersey because I knew as soon as it came off my back, I was taking a different course in life. I have another memory. I spent 10 years, 10 very lovely years in the city of Greenville, South Carolina. I spent all my schooling years there. And there was a place near where my wife and I lived that had a lovely campus. It was a small liberal arts university near where we lived, and they had a beautiful lake, and you could jog around the lake, and there was a spot that my wife and I would picnic or exercise or do all sorts of things. And The Lord was moving us on from that city, and the night before we left, I drove over there and sat down on a cool spring evening and just took in the sights and the sounds one last full time because I knew in the morning my life was going a different direction. I think just about every year when my wife and I go on vacation, there's a spot we love in particular. We're there for how many ever days and it's not with regret that we're leaving. There's lots of stuff that we need to get back to. There's 
ministry and excitement and people that I want to see again. And the night before we leave to return, I go out to that favorite spot and I sit and I just sort of soak it in. Not that it will be the last time, but it is the last time for a while. Because I know as soon as I get up from that spot, my life is going a new direction. And that's where we find Jesus in this passage of John 17. His life has taken a certain arc to this point. He sat down for a dinner with his disciples. In fact, he told his disciples, I have been greatly looking forward to having this meal with you. It's a long meal. It lasts several hours. And they've been dining on this Passover meal late into the night. And it's at this meal where we get the context for this prayer. This is the last event. This is the last moment of the meal before Jesus is going to go into the garden, sweat drops of blood. He's going to be arrested, tried, and executed. From this moment forward, his life is on a totally different trajectory. Something is changing. And he does what all of us do when that's going to happen. He takes a moment to do the thing that he loves most, and that is pray in the presence of his friends. As they've been eating, he dismisses Judas for whatever reason, he doesn't want Judas to hear this prayer. He gives a new command. He delivers the command to bear fruit. He declares that we'll have the Holy Spirit, and he declares that he has overcome the world. And as a culmination to all these teaching points that take place at the Last Supper, Jesus engages in what we now call the high priestly prayer, and that's what Benjamin read half of in John 17. Now, I'm calling this sermon Four Dying Requests. Again, I'm not totally convinced there are only four requests in here, but for the sake of division and help, and in fact, one of our requests is definitely two in one, but you'll see that they're connected in a moment. So if you like to take notes and you want to write down what those four requests are, I'm going to have them on the screen here in front of you so that you can write them down ahead of time and be ready when they come. These are the things that we're supposed to be praying for each other and about each other in the coming month. So I would strongly suggest that you take some sort of note over what these four dying requests of Jesus are. The first one he's praying for is, seeing it's the shortest one actually, in verse 13 he prays for overflowing joy. In verses 14 through 16, he prays for divine protection from a world that is guaranteed to hate us. The third thing he prays for is word-fueled sanctification. Now, I'm going to explain each of those words in just a moment, so don't get too hung up on what, that, what those words mean as they do require explanation. Even for those of us who've walked with the Lord for a long time, it's not totally intuitive what they mean. And then verse 4, union unto unity. Jesus is praying that we would be one with the Father and that he would be one with us, that we would be united to the Godhead so that we would dwell in perfect harmony and unity among ourselves. The two go together. Union leads to unity. You can't have unity without union. 
You need both. You need one to cause the other, and that's what Jesus is praying for. We'll get to those each in turn. Let's take up this first one here. Jesus prays for our overflowing joy. Jesus prays for our overflowing joy, and I want you to look at verse 13 right now. He says, but I am coming to you. Now, we covered verse 13 in our study last month, but we only so briefly touched on it, I felt we needed to revisit it. So I'm including it in this sermon. Verse 13, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now the grammar here is very important, and I think our English Standard Version translation does a a fairly good job, a very good job actually, of bringing this over. It is a challenge to translate, but for us to understand exactly what Jesus is praying for, we need to understand the nuances of it. Jesus is not praying that we would have a joy separate from his that's completed in ourselves. He's not looking at us saying, oh, they need joy. Let me complete some joy in them. That's not the wording that we encounter here. In this passage, that they may have is the verb. That's the verb, that you may have, that you may possess. And it's a word that always has to have a direct object. You have something. And so what is it that Jesus is wanting you to have? Well, he's wanting you to have Joy, specifically my joy. Jesus wants us to have his joy. But what is this idea of completed or fulfilled, that they would have my joy fulfilled in themselves? What is that word fulfilled? How does that factor in? This word fulfilled is an adjective describing joy. Okay? It's an adjective describing joy. The grammar has to be that way. Let me give you the upshot of what that means. It means something like this. That they may have my joy, a joy which has been filled to overflowing in themselves. Do you see what Jesus is asking for? He says, I have a joy a satisfaction that's derived from doing the Father's will, from completing the Father's work, and that joy is so full and satisfying in me, and I want them to have what I have. I want them to have that sense of completion and satisfaction and rest. That's what Jesus is praying for. Do you see the difference in the nuance there? Jesus wants us to have something that he possesses. Now, where does he get that? Well, Hebrews 12.2 actually tells us something very important. If we look at a cross-reference here, the joy of Jesus we find in Hebrews 12.2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea of seated is the idea of completion. We've noted this before many times, but when you read through the Old Testament, especially the law portion, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the writer goes into great detail to describe the temple, the tabernacle, and all its furnishings. There is 
a piece of furniture in the temple that is noteworthy by its absence. Do you know what can't be found in an Old Testament temple anywhere? Chairs. There's no chairs anywhere because the priest's job was never done. The priest was always offering an animal, offering grain, offering incense, filling this, burning that, attending to this, taking ashes out of here, moving this animal there. The work of a priest was hard work, slaughtering large animals, dealing with the slick blood as it flowed out of them, would burn your forearms as you gripped these animals that are dead and lifeless. It was a never-ending task. They never got to sit down. But Jesus, who for the joy set before him, suffered incredibly. He endured the cross. He endured the shame. And now, in great satisfaction, he sits down. This last summer, we had an intern here with us. His name was Enoch. Some of you got to know him. One of the projects that I had with Enoch, we wanted to do something that was kind of fun. I'm sure some of you men have gotten into these sorts of projects where you think the project is going to be relatively easy and straightforward, but next thing you know, the project is out of control, (laughs) and it takes over your life. Well, Enoch and I were going to build some Adirondack chairs, but not just any Adirondack chairs. Adirondack chairs that rock. Well, I had plans. It was going to be easy. I was going to follow the plans. Next thing you know, Enoch and I were in way deep over our heads. But we got it done. And those babies rock, let me tell you. It's a little harder to get them to rock than the video showed. Look, that's, that's a fact. But after we got our Adirondack chairs built and finished and ready... Before we sat down in them, we brought them over to a special place where we could overlook the valley, and then Enoch and I, we didn't even give my wife the first sit, okay? Because Enoch and I built them. We sat down like a couple of kings on their thrones, satisfied. The work is done. And we enjoyed the evening. That sort of Satisfaction in an accomplishment and rest. Completion. That's the sort of settled rest that Jesus wants to come into your hearts and overflow into joy. Number two, Jesus prays for divine protection. Jesus says right here in verse 15, he says that the world, I'm sorry, uh, verse 14, there is guaranteed hatred from the world. He says, I've given them your word, uh, your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Jesus says in other places in the New Testament, don't think the servant is greater than the master. If they crucified the Son of Man for healing the lame and giving sight to the blind, what do you think he's going to do? What do you think the world's going to do to you? There is guaranteed hatred from the world, yet when the world sees this difference that the word works in our hearts, 
when the world sees that settled joy and that rested satisfaction in what Christ has done for us, the first inclination is not to want it, but to despise it. In fact, the word that's used here, the verb that's used here, is more than strong dislike. It's an intense hatred. It's to detest, to abhor, or to reject. And Jesus says, I'm, the world is going to abhor you, detest you, for the word that I gave you and the satisfaction that it works in your heart. And then Jesus does something specific here. He's, he says something very interesting. Now, when Jesus talks to his father, does he ever need to clarify? I don't think so. What Jesus is clarifying here to give his prayer added punch and poignancy so that we might understand even more the heart of Jesus. And he says, I am not, I am not praying for something. Do not take them out of the world. Which is startling that he would specify this, but he does. And then he gives a strong counter, but, but what I am praying, what I am praying is that you would keep them, that you would guard them. In Acts chapter 12, verse 6, we're told that this word keep, guard, is to protect a prisoner. And the, the, the Roman prison guards were there not just to protect the prisoner from escaping, but to protect those outside from getting to the prisoner. They're supposed to deliver this prisoner safely to the judge. It goes both ways, and that's the sort of word that is being used here. But I think there's something else going on. Because of what comes next, and because of how John uses this word earlier. Do you remember from John chapter 2 in verse 10 when Jesus went to a wedding in Cana? And the wedding party committed a huge social faux pas. They ran out of wine. Oh, this was a terrible thing. Did you know that Jewish law says that you could be liable to suit if you run out of stuff at a wedding party? They took wedding parties very seriously. And for those who took weeks off of work and so forth and went to this party, they expected their needs to be taken care of. And if you shorted them, you could win a suit against them in a court of law for damages suffered was a major problem. Jesus instructs the servants to fill up these huge stone vats of water. He fill those things up with water and then he turns them into wine and the master of ceremony is given a cup of this wine and he takes a drink of it and he says, wow, most people save the cheap wine to the end of the wedding, but you... And here's our word, have protected, guarded, preserved the good stuff for last. This word means to protect and guard and preserve, but it means to do so for a special use. Set it aside for something important later. And here Jesus is saying, don't 
take them out of the world, but guard and protect them and preserve them for a special purpose. Now, why do I think? Why am I interpreting it that way? Well, what's the next request? That brings us to our third request. He says, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. He prays for our word-fueled sanctification. The first thing I want you to do is look at your translations, and I want you to see how Jesus uses this word sanctify three times very close to each other. Twice it's obvious, once it's not. Okay, Jesus says right here, he says, in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That's the first one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, here's our second one, for their sake, I sanctify or I consecrate. It's the same Greek word, hagiadzo. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus says, sanctify them with the word. For this very reason, I have sanctified myself so that you would sanctify them. What does it mean to sanctify? Well, the word sanctify means to declare holy, to make holy. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) It simply means to set apart for a sacred use. Okay? Let's pretend that a synagogue in the ancient first century world, needed to raise some funds for a new roof. And so the director of the synagogue went down to the local box store and bought a wooden box. He had a hundred to choose from. But he picked one, and he bored a hole in the top of it, and he brought it and he put it in the synagogue, and then people would drop their money into that box. Now suddenly that box has taken on special use. It was one of a bunch of marketed ones, but now it's taken and it's put here, and it's become something special. Perhaps you have a a shirt that you like to wear for special occasions. Or maybe some of you ladies have a pair of shoes that you save for special occasions. It's a certain use. It's an item that was made all the same as the rest of them, but it's set aside for something special. And so Jesus is praying right here, set aside my people for something special. And he's just prayed that God would protect us for some special work. Furthermore, Jesus says, I have set myself apart from the world for special use so that they too would be taken out of the mass of people and set aside over here for God's special use, for his sacred purposes. Now, 
When John uses the word sanctify, he does something interesting. He doesn't use it very often. Of all the New Testament writers, John uses it the least. But whenever John uses the word holy or sanctified, and the Greek noun hagias is holy, it's the same word as the verb hagiazo for sanctify, it almost always refers to God something specially God's. Now, the reason I'm dwelling on this is that Jesus is saying, we need to understand this in light of what he's praying. Jesus is praying that we would be utterly transformed by his word and set apart for special use in the kingdom of God. Now, friends, listen. People come to this book misusing it all the time. They come to it attempting to use it to shoehorn their worldview into it. They'll look for a little sentence or phrase to vindicate themselves. That's how unbelievers use it. Other people, even believers, misuse it too. And they'll go to a church service, so they'll open up their book, and what are they looking for? They're looking for little nuggets, helpful little principles, guiding points. Ten steps for healthy finance. Want to have a happy marriage? Look in the Bible. Well, will the Bible tell you how to have a happy marriage? Will the Bible guide you in your personal finances? Of course. I'm not denying that. But this book is far bigger and wider and transforming than some helpful little triptychs to get us down the road. This is a book that transforms us from within. It's a book whose principles, puts, whose teachings put us on a totally different plane, apart from the world, set aside for God's purposes. It's not that we come to this book saying, Lord, guide us. We come to this book saying, Lord, change us. And suddenly our world takes different shape and meaning. And simply by the fact that you're bringing your entire being under the teachings of this book, you are put on a different plane altogether, and you have suddenly what's called a biblical worldview. You see everything through the lens of this book. And this book becomes an instrument, a tool, by which God sets you apart for special service. Okay, let's go back to our little illustration before. Imagine the synagogue leader going down and picking out a box. Why would he pick the box that he picked? Maybe he liked that particular wood, or maybe he liked that particular size, or whatever it was about it, he set that one aside. This book then becomes the instrument 
the tool by which God transforms us and shapes us into tools, into ministers, into a people that he can use for special things. It's not our willpower. It's not picking up little points. It's not a politic. It's not anything external. It's a change of heart. And what's the fourth request? Jesus prays union unto unity. And this is the thing that Jesus dwells on longest. I'm not going to reread the paragraph. It's a challenging paragraph to understand, I admit, and I'm not saying I understand it. Um, It's very challenging. What I'd like to do is just hit the highlights enough for us to be able to pray these words in some meaningful way back to the Lord. What we see here is the Lord is asking for two things that are inseparably merged together. Okay? He's praying not just for his disciples, but for all who will believe in him, that we will be unified with God through him. That Jesus would dwell in us, that the Lord would be with us, and that we would experience the same union with God that Christ has had with God from eternity past. The second thing he's praying, and this is what I mean by union unto unity, that as we walk in union with God, as his spirit fills our hearts and teaches us to cry, Abba, Father, that that relationship vertically with God would work its way out horizontally into our relationships with other believers. And fueled by our relationship with God, we would have harmony and unity with those other people who are truly gods. Now, a few things. Number one, notice the threefold emphasis, okay, in verses 21 through 23. He says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through, the, through their word, that they may all be one. That's unity, just as you, the Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That's union. And they may believe you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That's union. That they may be one. That's unity. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. Union, that they may be perfectly one, unity. Do you see that? Oneness, union, fellowship with God individually makes fellowship and union and harmony with others. Okay. couple notes here. Number one, saving union is a prerequisite to true unity with other believers. You see, there's a lot of people who will come to you and say, well, I'm a Christian. But they redefine God, they redefine Jesus, they don't, they redefine salvation. And they come to you with this verse, like a stick, beating you into unity with them. But they don't share your union with God. 
try as you might to be unified with them, you can't. You never will be until they are united with God through Christ. Many Christians through the centuries have tried to unify with unbelievers. And ultimately it falls apart because the one prerequisite, unity with God, isn't there in all parties involved. Furthermore, sanctifying union is also a prerequisite for true unity with other believers. Let me explain that very quickly. Imagine a person comes into a church. It's a good church. Now, by the way, I'm not painting with a broad brush. There are some churches that just aren't friendly, and a person will never fit in there because of the church. That happens, but let's assume in this case that this is a great church. People there love the Lord. And the person who comes into this church loves God, but they love something else in addition to God. And it can be something really good. They love the wholesome education of their children. They love performance music. They love compelling preaching. They love the social aspect of Christianity. And for a long time, their interests can run in line with the local church. But it's not truly in line. They're a little askew. And over time, they grow apart. Because in the one case, their people are pushing toward Christ. And in the other case, this person is pushing toward something that looks like Christ, but it's a little bit off. And they diverge. And they diverge. For a church, a group of Christians, for a group of Christians to have true unity among themselves, it requires those believers pursuing individual union with Christ. And we're told, for example, in the book of Hebrews, when we see a person going astray, going towards something that's not Christ, diverging from us, it's our obligation to go and call them back to walk with us and step toward our goal, toward Jesus. Union that begets unity, Jesus prays, is the greatest evangelistic testimony in our arsenal. He says this twice, that the world may believe, that the world may know the way that we care for each other has long-term evangelistic benefit far greater than any other tool that we have. Folks, the world doesn't care to see churches that are just like them. It might look weird to them at first, but when a group of believers truly care about each other and pour into each other and meet each other's needs and pray for each other and do all the things that the New Testament church says they're supposed to do in unity springing from healthy union... Outsiders look in on that and go, whoa, I didn't know that could happen. Surely that's not happening 
And the people in the church said, well, of course it is. And when I got sick, you know, how many ever months ago, man, I, I got so much food, I couldn't fit it in my refrigerator. And, and when I, when my wife ended up in the hospital, I, people were there with her all the time. And man, I had this trial in my life and I got, frankly, frankly, it was a little overwhelming, all the number of texts that I got. And I kept having to re-explain it. And I just wanted to make a pulpit announcement and say, you don't have to pray for it anymore. Leave me alone. <laughs> that, that sort of testimony that's cultivated over long years of caring for each other has great evangelistic power in its outflow. Then last, union that begets unity is at its core the transfer of God's love into us. And that's Jesus' closing statement. He ends on the high note of love. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Allow the love that you've shown me, allow the love that we have for each other to flow into them such that love informs their unity, their union with you and their unity with each other. Now, in one moment, I'm going to ask Opal to come play quietly. In weeks past, what I did was I gave you sample prayers. Okay? This week, what I'd like to do is take three minutes and for you to write your own sample prayer based on what we've studied this morning. Tonight, if you come back for upreach, maybe we can pray some of those sample prayers that you write down right now. But remember, as a church, on Tuesdays, every Tuesday of this month, we're praying this for each other. And I want to give you your own sample prayer that you can be praying for all of us based on what we've learned today. So Opal's going to take three minutes, play quietly. You jot out your own sample prayer. It's not the only one you have to make, but or you can make, rather. Jot it out. And then after... Two or three minutes has passed. Three minutes has passed. Nathan's going to come up and lead us in our final song. We're going to be observing the Lord's table today. If you didn't plan that into your schedule and you need to go, that's fine. While we sing that last song, you just slip out the back. We take 15, maybe 20 minutes tops, 10, 15 minutes to observe the Lord's table. And we would love for you to stick around with us and enjoy that. But all that to say, take... Three minutes, write out your sample prayer. Nathan's going to come close us in a song and then we'll observe the Lord's table.